No, I'm just kidding. We intended to do that. But before I do that, I just want to encourage you with something um, I think is very pertinent for us to hear. Um, so you can, if you want to, hold your place in Matt, uh, Mark chapter 3. And I want listen to me read from Matthew 5, or you're welcome to turn there with me. But in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus here has the Sermon on the Mount recorded. One of the things that he has said in this sermon that has stuck out to me this week is this. He says in verse number 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. My prayer for us as a church is that in this tumultuous time, that not just Hagerstown, not just Maryland, but our nation and the world, really, are, that, that we, as we go through this time, that people would look to us and in the face of adversity, in the, in the face, in the midst of frustration and anger and people's feelings being hurt and even uh, their lives being threatened, that we would be seen as a people with a light that doesn't come from us. It's not something that we have in and of ourselves, but it's something that God has placed in us, and that's the light shining through us out into this world, and specifically in Hagerstown. I pray that God would make Hagerstown Church continue to make us peacemakers. Because that's what he said we will be. We'll be called peacemakers. We will be peacemakers. And the ones who are peacemakers, we call the sons of God. So that's my prayer for us this morning, that we would truly be a church that as people from the outside look on, that they would see, man, there's something different about those people. They are peacemakers. So that's my prayer this morning for you. That's been my prayer this week and even last week, that we would be a people like this as Jesus talks about. So anyway, that's all for free. That's not the sermon. That's just a quick encouragement. Um, although we could pack up and go home. Uh, it's been an enjoyable time hearing you guys sing uh, to the Lord. And, and in my presence, it's been an encouraging thing, as I told you last week. I love to hear uh, God's people sing together. But let's, let's get into the work here at Mark chapter 3. Uh, so last week, we looked at verses 20, Mark chapter 3, verses 20, all the way down to the end of the chapter, which is verse 35. We looked at this idea through the framework, this text through the, the framework of liar, lunatic, Lord. And Jesus is said by many people to be a good teacher, uh, but nothing more. Well, Jesus can't be a good teacher and nothing more. This is uh, a, a good point. If somebody says that he's God, but he's really not God, he's either a liar, he's trying to deceive you, which means he is not good, or he has deceived himself and a lunatic. Again, not in the category of good teachers. So to, to try to give Jesus this pat on the back, like, hey, let's give him a good place in history. Uh, let's uh, recognize him as a pretty cool guy and help to shape uh, the culture at large today. And he's done some great things, and his influence is still you know, going on today. That's, that's great, but he's so much more than that. And as C.S. Lewis uh, puts it, he has not left that option available to us. So we saw that last week. We saw Jesus' family. They're looking at him and saying, hey, we like this guy. But we think he's a, a little bit crazy. He's, he's put himself in a, in a dangerous situation, and so we need to go rescue him. And then and, and on top of uh, Jesus uh, being called essentially a lunatic by his family, uh, he's also seen to be called a liar, a deceiver. Um, and, and, and even worse, uh, a step past that, saying that he is possessed by a devil and is the Lord by, possessed by the Lord of the devils. Um, and so, but finally we saw that those who were true uh, believers, those who were Jesus' true family, were those who obeyed the Father. And uh, that's who we long to be. That's who the church is, those who do the will of the Father. But within that text that we looked at last week, there was this nugget of truth, not a one-off statement that Jesus makes, but we 
do take it that way sometimes. And so I wanted to look at the first, uh, the, those verses 20 to 35 first, and then go back and look at, so that once we have the context set, go back and look at this idea of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, or the unpardonable sin, or the unforgivable sin, as many people call it. Now, even as I've been raised in church, I grew up uh, in a Christian home, attending church on a regular basis, I hated coming to this passage. Because I always had a fear that I had I had somehow committed this sin. And I don't think I'm alone in Christendom uh, as the one person who fears that they've committed this, uh, this tragic, terrible sin against the Holy Spirit. And so I think this morning as we go through this, as, as the Lord and His through His Spirit uh, shines light on this text before our eyes, I think that it will be an encouragement to you. And my prayer is that if you are in need of encouragement, if you are uh, disheartened, you're disturbed that through this text you'll be lifted up. But if you are exalted this morning in pride, I pray sincerely that you would be brought low, that you would be humbled. Because I know that through the that, that that's the will of the Lord this morning, and He has the power to do so. So that is my prayer. Let's read the text uh, briefly. Look at 29, 30, and I'm sorry, 28, 29, and 30, and then we'll pray. This is what it says. Jesus speaking, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Let's pray. God, we do ask as we look at your text this morning that you would bless it. And that through it your church would be encouraged, that we would be fed would be lifted up. Father, those of us who are straying from you, that we would be drawn back in. Those of us who are blaspheming your name, that we would be convicted of that this morning. That in faith, we would repent and trust the work of Christ on the cross as payment for that very sin. God, we pray the one that is most discouraged this morning would be encouraged through your word. That your mercy and even the grace that we see Jesus so clearly displayed and that you went forward, that you leaned into those who accused you. It was grace. Jesus, we know that that's what you're doing this morning. You're leaning into us. So we receive that. Father, again, we pray that you would make Hagerstown Church church full of peacemakers. God, may we be a people that listen. We listen to those who are hurting. That we would weep with those who weep. That we would mourn with those who mourn. That we would rejoice with those who rejoice. Father, would you make us a church? Would you make us a people that is slow to speak, slow to be angry? God, would you make us a church that known as peacemakers. Because you've called us to be reconcilers, man to you, and you've given us the gospel, and so we hold that dearly this morning. We're nourished by it. We leave this place with it. We ask that all these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory alone. Amen. So we looked at Mark chapter 3. We read verses 28 to 30. 
And as I said a moment ago, this is one of the most shocking and disturbing statements that I think that Jesus ever spoke. Think about that. That there's a sin that will not be forgiven. Again, it's been called the unpardonable sin. It's been called the unforgivable sin. And so this morning, and, and it doesn't matter if you're the, the, the oldest one here or the youngest that can comprehend me, you're thinking in your mind, what is that sin? What is that unpardonable sin? What is that unforgivable sin? Perhaps you naturally begin to think through the sins that you're aware of, maybe in your own life, or that you've seen in the lives of others, maybe on television, some, maybe on the news. Maybe your mind begins to think, what's the worst thing that somebody could, could ever commit? Maybe you think with me this morning, maybe it's murder. Just a, a few a short weeks ago, Officer Derek Chauvin was arrested. He was charged with the second-degree murder of George Floyd. His actions really have helped to spark a national protest that's calling for justice and police reform, among other things. Millions upon millions have watched the disturbing footage. Maybe you have as well. Anger in your heart stirring up. Maybe even for you, hatred. And maybe you begin to think in your mind, that is the unforgivable sin. To, to snuff out the life of an image bearer. Maybe that's what you're thinking right now. I want to agree with you in the sense that murder is monstrous. It's terrible. It's heinous. In any form or fashion. Whatever your intention was. But it is not unforgivable. Forgivable. Some of the greatest heroes of, of the faith have been chronicled in the Bible as being murderers. Some of our greatest heroes, think of Moses. He murdered an Egyptian. About David, way worse. He, he killed a man and then he took his wife as his own. And that's not even all the details. But he murdered somebody. About the Apostle Paul, we, we can imagine, we're, we're sure that he has killed many people. In fact, killed Christians. But even if we don't know the names of Christians that he actually killed. We know this about the Apostle Paul, that he was an accomplice to a murder. People laid the, the, their jackets at the feet of Jesus, or I'm sorry, at the, at the feet of, of, of Saul or Paul as Stephen was murdered. So each of these men, they're guilty of murder. But listen, they each received forgiveness from God. And so listen, the unforgivable sin is not murder. It's not murder. Well, going on down the list, you think, well, maybe if it's not murder, maybe it's adultery. Again, David committed adultery, and yet he was forgiven. We see that in Psalm 32. So was the woman in John chapter 8. Jesus forgave her. Literally, explicitly said, I forgive you. And then he said, what? Go and sin no more. What about the Samaritan woman at the well? Had several wives, and Jesus says to her husbands, and she said, he said to her, the one that you're with right now is not even your husband. So it's obvious that neither of these sins, murder nor adultery, grave and terrible acts against God and man, it's clear that they are not unforgivable. It's not beyond the scope of mercy. Moving on down the list, maybe there's some I'm missing here in your mind. Maybe we'll hit them here. What about denying Jesus? Denying Jesus while under pressure or in danger. I remember as a kid, hearing about this disciple, Peter, who denied Jesus three times. Just as a kid, I could hardly imagine a more heinous and grievous sin to commit. How could you deny your master? Especially thinking you just walked with this guy, he's basically your best friend, and he's God, and you know he is. You know he's the Lord. And yet, what do you do? You you denied him three times. I thought, man, this would never be forgiven. How could that be forgiven? That would, 
I knew that it would never be forgiven if I ever committed it. And yet even that terrible sin was forgiven. And this man, Peter, was famously restored even to ministry while they ate breakfast there on the beach. So some Christians have argued that maybe since uh, denying Jesus and murder aren't the unpardonable sin, maybe it's suicide. Maybe that's the unpardonable sin. And here's the thing. The Bible, it talks negatively against murder, forbids it under the Sixth Commandment. There, suicide would no doubt be included there. But in no text in the Old Testament or the New Testament does it say anything about it being unforgivable. It's hogwash. It's foolishness. It's unfounded. No support for that idea. And so murder, adultery, denying Jesus, even suicide, all of these can be forgiven. All of them. Most of us, though, when we read this passage that I just read, we get fixated on the unpardonable sin. And we are going to chase that down this morning. We're going to chase it down. We're going to find out what it is, this unpardonable sin. But before we do that, I want you to just stop and pause for a minute. We're going to end up, this, we're going to end the sermon right here where I'm at right now, but I want, I want you to think about this point. Murder, adultery, suicide, lust, theft, blasphemy, all of these sins can and have been forgiven of many of you in this room. You hear that? We we hear the statement that there are there is a sin that cannot be forgiven, and we get fixated on that. But did you just pass over the fact and forget the fact that sins are forgiven? That any sin can be forgiven. Imagine that. Any sin that you've committed against the holy, righteous God should never be forgiven. And yet it it, it, it is and can be. We we really literally could stop right now. No joke. We could stop right now. And uh, we could get an altar call. We could all get right with Jesus and leave praising him because he has forgiven. I said he's made that available to us. Praise him for that. Worship him for the fact fact that he, if you're in Christ, your future is not separation from God in an eternal place called hell. That he would offer that is just an unspeakable glory. And yet we, here I am attempting to speak of. Jesus says a statement here that oftentimes can be confused by many, though. It says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. I'm going to clear up something here. It does not mean here, Jesus said, all sins will be forgiven. It's not uh, regardless of all the circumstances. There is one particular circumstance that has to be in place in order for that statement to be true. And that uh, circumstance is repentance in the life of the one who is guilty. It's an implied condition for forgiveness. It's throughout the scriptures. That forgiveness comes when there is repentance. Jesus is saying basically here that there's no sin. No sin that is outside the scope of forgiveness. Obviously, uh, Assuming that repentance is involved. I want you to notice too, he said, truly. It's a Hebrew word for amen. Usually when we say something at the end of what we say, we say amen. So we're not necessarily that kind of jerk. Maybe we should be. But when there's a, a statement that's true, lots of times in church we'll say what? Amen. We've heard it. Maybe even here this morning we heard it. When we say a prayer, we believe in that prayer where we're, we're worshiping the Lord, we're praying and asking something of him, and at the end we end it with amen. Why? Because 
that that's the right thing to do. We see that in Scripture. But here, Jesus begins his statement with amen. What he's doing is he's saying, that obviously, everything Jesus says is true. But he's drawing his hearers in, and he's really expressing here emphatically that his words are reliable and true because he is totally committed to speak and do the will of his Father. And so he's saying, hey, I want you to listen up. What I'm about to say is reliable and true, and he's also saying what he says truly, when he says amen, that you need to hear it. He's saying, your sins can be forgiven. You're not too far outside of grace. So these things are good to know. It's good to be reminded of that, truly. That's an understatement, that it's good to be reminded. This text actually gives us more information than just that God will forgive sins. What is it, though? You're saying, you know it's not murder, the unforgivable sin. It's not murder. You know it's not just any blasphemy. We know it's not just, uh, it's not adultery. It's not suicide. But what is it? What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Let's look at that. But first, uh, before we get into what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, we're going to look first at what blasphemy is. Maybe if you've read through the, the Gospel of Mark, if you've been remembering of exactly what was taking place, you know that this is the first time this word is used in this Gospel. And so the sin of blasphemy has been around for quite a while. Jesus uh, is not uh, introducing people to this idea here in verse 29. In fact, the Old Testament records instances where this occurred and it was dealt with. So to, to blaspheme was when a man would insult, attack, or injure the honor of God. When he would insult, attack, or injure the honor of God. Now this is just blasphemy. It's not blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This word is used exclusively with God in the Old Testament as the one who is being blasphemed. But in the New Testament, the, the word for blasphemy is, is, is different because it's actually a different language. But the, the, the word for blasphemy, it's basically the same thing. Um, but it's uh, very much akin to slander or to, to curse. And it's used against both God and man. So you can, in the New Testament, it records as being able to blaspheme God, but also being able to blaspheme man. There's an interesting connection there. I, I want to chase that down just for a second. In other words... The New Testament, it adds to the fact that you can blaspheme God and man, and it makes a connection between the two. And the connection between being able to blaspheme God and injure his character, or dishonor him, or slander him, and to do the same thing to man, is the connection that man is made in the image of God. So the reason why we're not to blaspheme God is because he's God. The reason why we're not to blaspheme or slander man is because man, each and every one of us, from the oldest to the youngest, it doesn't even matter what stage of life you are in, you were made in the image of God, and therefore, slander, curses, racial slurs, anything designed or intended to denigrate human beings are, in the New Testament sense, blasphemous. It's blasphemy. They're slanderous, and they're abusive. And we're, we, as the people of God, as peacemakers, as the sons of God, are to avoid it at all costs. This is blasphemy. For the Jews, this sin was very, very Serious, especially when God was the one whose honor was attacked. Do you remember when the Pharisees, they first accused Jesus of blasphemy? It was in Mark chapter 2, verse 7. If you've got your Bible, just flip over there real quickly. Maybe you're on the same page already. This is what they say. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? How can he do that? See, in their eyes, Jesus is just a man, and he's claiming 
to do the work that only God can do. And so he's, he's claiming in some way to, to liken himself to God, to be equal with God, or maybe even to be God. They don't like all of it. They believe it's Jesus dishonoring the character of God right before him. And so they call foul. They call blasphemy, which is punishable by murder. Or by, not by murder, I'm sorry, but by death. So to blaspheme God or man is to say or do something that lies about or dishonors their character or nature. So that's what blasphemy is. But what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I want to give you a definition. If you're taking notes, I'll say it a few times. It'll be on the screen so you can write it down. This is, this is the definition for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is the willful, unrelenting rejection of the authority of Jesus Christ as attested to by the Holy Spirit. Don't you like long definitions that just roll on and on? It's the willful, unrelenting rejection of the authority of Jesus Christ as attested to by the Holy Spirit. So I'm using this text, but then also this uh, statement here, I want to really just walk through the rest of our time, uh, mainly looking at some words in that definition. So the first word I want to look at is the willful the willful. So their, their options, really, as the scribes, the Pharisees here, their options are quite limited. They're looking at Jesus, they're noticing what's taking place, and they're thinking there's, uh, there's really only two possible explanations for what has happened uh, with this man. And so they know in their mind that this isn't a farce, this isn't a joke, something really of substance has happened. Demons are literally, honestly, before their eyes being cast out. People who are oppressed are being set free. People who have been uh, uh, caught up in some type of a sin or even an addiction or, or even a disease have been released from that. And so before their eyes, there's no invisible strings. They know there's no smoke, no mirrors here. It's either the work of God or it's the work of the devil, one or the other. These are their two options. I want you to pay attention. This is really important. They only have two options. Since they have decided they would refuse to recognize Jesus as God, that Jesus was working under the power of God, they had no other option than to conclude that Jesus did these things by the power of Satan himself. So I'm going to fight with my, uh, my sweetheart over there to keep your attention. Have you ever been in an argument and realized halfway through the argument that your logic was faulty. Anybody? We've all been there. Now, you've all been to that point where you've realized, I am wrong. And so now you have a decision to make. Many of you, you don't have a decision to make. You love the truth so much, you will embrace the truth, even if you were on the opposite side. But for most of us, there comes a point in our, in our argument when we see that there's a fault in our logic, that we do not have all the facts, or we have them incorrectly in order, that we have a choice. Are we going to see to our opponent that we've been ousted, and are we going to double down and commit to the sinking ship with an obnoxious confidence? Sadly, in my own life, I have taken the second route too many times to count. We've all done it. We've abandoned truth and even reason in an effort to save faith. So I want you to see that that's what, the, that's what these religious rulers are doing in this moment. 
You see, it's not evidence that they're rejecting. They don't, they're not rejecting the evidence. They're rejecting the implication of the evidence. They know that if Jesus is God, if he is equal with God, if he can really be likened to God and is working under the power of God, that they have to listen to what he is saying because now his message is validated. And because they've already rejected that implication, they reject the evidence as well. This is a dangerous place. You've all just admitted to me that you have done it or are tempted to do it. So we, we look at the scribes here this morning and we say, well, we would never do that. And yet, we have done that many, many times. So they had two options. What were they going to do? Were they going to attribute this to, to God, listen to Jesus' message they despise? Or would they attribute this to the devil, even though that's a totally illogical statement? we saw last week. They didn't deny the existence of the supernatural. They didn't deny that these things were taking place. They did rely, deny that Jesus was who he says he was. And so they claimed, the devil empowered you to do it. And they willingly reject Jesus. This is a, a scary situation to find yourself in. Maybe you can even, in that moment, in that argument, stand beside yourself and look at yourself and think, how can I do this? How can I abandon truth altogether just to, for my own namesake and for my own pride? This is what they've done. This is what they're doing, as, as the text tells us. They were saying, they continue to say it. May it not be said of us that we willfully reject the statements and the work of Jesus Christ demonstrated through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a dangerous place, and it's part of the definition of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is a willful action. Not only is it willful, but it is also unrelenting. It's unrelenting. It's important to notice the phrase in verse 30, they were saved. It has the imperfect tense, which means that it's an action that happened in the past, but it didn't stop in the past. It kept going into the present or at least for some indefinite period of time. It, didn't just, it wasn't just a one-time thing. Okay, It continued to take place, and it was all of them, really, I mean, generally speaking, they're all guilty of it. It means it happened in the past, and it's continued to happen. And so the scribes were repeating this accusation against Jesus. He's possessed by a devil. He's a liar. He's deceiving you. They began to say, they continued to say this, every time the evidence of the saving power of Jesus would come to mind. And they'd think about this man, maybe they even knew, twice removed. They, they know somebody that knows somebody that was healed from this, or their, their sight was taken from them uh, through some accident and then restored through this miracle of Jesus. And they would hear these things, it would come to mind, and they would continue to say to themselves, but he has a demon. He has a demon. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Son of God. Every time they would think, I should listen to this guy. I should stop. I should repent or repent of my pride. They wouldn't. They would continue to do that. They would stay their own wicked course. No, he has a demon. So the, the willful, unrelenting rejection of the authority of Jesus Christ. The willful, unrelenting rejection of the authority of Jesus Christ. And here's the last part. As attested to by the Holy Spirit. As attested to by the Holy Spirit. And this is where we really get into the definition of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is the key part that Jesus is speaking of. So, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
It's against, it's an action taken against the Holy Spirit. And, and really, we can't just take verses 28, 29, and 30 out and be like, okay, out of the context, set the rest of that to the side, and then begin to unpack uh, these three verses without the greater context. And so, not just the greater context of chapter 3, but all of Mark together. So do you remember the testimony of John the Baptist, or John, John the Baptizer? Do you remember what he said? He announced the Messianic era by telling, uh, or announcing the, the coming of a more powerful one. And he said of this, this Messiah, or this more powerful one that was coming, he said, that, I baptize you with water, but there's coming someone who is going to baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit. It's Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. So Jesus here shows himself. He, probably, he appears, he shows himself as that more powerful one. He's the greater one, right? Greater than John. Also, he's greater than the strong man, as we looked at last week. He's able to bind the strong man, who is Satan. So we're able to overpower his demons. And the gravity of the offense of the scribes, really, Mark is telling us, is that they accuse Jesus of having an evil or unclean spirit. Not the Holy Spirit. It's the opposite of that. It's the antithesis of that. It's the opposite goal. But we know that the sin against the Holy Spirit, it's not an indefinite, it's not a vague action against God. It's instead a very specific misjudgment that Jesus is motivated by evil rather than good. That he is empowered by the devil and evil spirits rather than by the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting here. There's another passage that sheds another light, another gospel, Matthew chapter 12. Give us a little bit of a different statement. It says, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And so, I would ask you this. So think about this. Why was this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit more heinous than the blasphemy against the Son of Man or against Jesus? Why? Why does Matthew give us some clarification there and say that? Their, their, their sin is against the Holy Spirit. Because it was by the power of the Spirit that Jesus was performing his miracles and his healing. The Holy Spirit is authenticating. He's, he's demonstrating the power of Jesus, the true message and identity of Jesus. Matthew tells us it was by the Spirit of God in verse 28 of chapter 12. It's by the Spirit of God that he cast out demons. The life Jesus lived, he lived in the power of the Spirit. The miracles he performed, he performed by the power of the Spirit. The Spirit was testifying before their eyes that this is the Messiah. So from his baptism onward, Jesus, as God's Son, was being empowered and in step by the Spirit of God. And so whenever the scribes or anybody look at Jesus and say, that's a devil. This is the devil. What are they doing? Or somebody looks at the devil and says, this is God's son. This is the Messiah. It's saying here that that's an eternal sin. Why? Because anyone who willingly or not can't distinguish between evil and good, or good from evil, darkness from light, light from darkness, is being, is really behold, or beyond hope of repentance. Because you, you don't know what's right and what's wrong. You can't hear truth. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. What does it mean? 
Woe. Cursed. Judgment is upon them. They don't, they, they're literally damned. How can, they, how can they make it out alive? How can they please God? They don't know what's right and what's wrong. They don't know what's light and what's darkness. They don't know what's evil and what's righteous. It makes me think of a statement in, out of Paradise Lost by John Milton. It says this, Abashed, the devil stood and felt how awful goodness is and saw virtue in her shape, how lovely and kind is love. The devil stood and felt how awful goodness is and saw virtue in her shape, how lovely and kind is lost. With disdain, he says, the devil looked upon goodness and thought it awful. This is why people believed in Jesus, because the Holy Spirit was testifying to them through the power, his power, in the life of Jesus. He was testifying to them. And it was the Holy Spirit who had given him the power to perform these actions, proved that he was the Messiah. So the willful, unrelenting rejection of the, whole, of the authority of Jesus Christ as attested to by the Holy Spirit, that is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so quickly, before we move on, I want to ask you this question. Why is it unforgivable then? Why can you blaspheme the Son of God? Why can you reject Him in a sense for a time? But why is it so much worse when you reject the Holy Spirit? Because that rejection the Holy Spirit is the only way by which salvation is available. There's no salvation in any other, the scriptures say. There's no other way to receive forgiveness from God than by the drawing of the Holy Spirit. When someone rejects the testimony of the Holy Spirit concerning Jesus, repentance is not on the table any longer. It's impossible. Because the recognition of sin is no longer possible. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts. God's offer of mercy is, in effect, refused when we reject the Holy Spirit. It's to cut yourself off from the only source of salvation. And I don't think, uh, in case you're wondering, I don't think there's any particular word or word order uh, that we have to be aware of. The issue is when the Holy Spirit begins to work and testify in your life, before your eyes, in your heart, that Jesus Christ is, in fact, Christ, and you resist that. And when you resist that, there comes a point when your resisting is unforgivable. Why? Because the Spirit will not draw you. When that happens, there is no longer hope of repentance in your life. That's one of the scariest things that you could ever hear me say. But there comes a point in your life that when you resist the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, that you can no longer reach the point of repentance. You can't repent. Even if you could, I've spoken with people who are confronted by their sin, not by somebody else even, and they say, I wish I could change, but I can't. I don't even feel sorry for that. As a matter of fact, I want honestly to continue to do that. In a sense, we see them and we pity them because they're beyond forgiveness. Why? Because the, the Spirit is not drawing them. The Spirit is not convicting them of their sin anymore. They've resisted it. So when you've resisted him so decisively that he has forsaken you, and you can no longer repent, you have done what is considered to be unforgivable. Why? Because you cannot repent. You can't be sorry genuinely for your sin in terms of the spirit that worked in the life of Christ is not working in your life. Again, that is a horribly frightening situation to be. 
So all sin has the possibility of being forgiven. All sin except the sin of, of unrepentance. Repentance only comes via the drawing of the Holy Spirit. We'll unpack that just for a minute. We'll move quickly here. John chapter 6, verse 44 says, No man can come to me, Jesus is saying, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. In case we get confused here, it says, well, in this passage here, it says the Father draws. Well, people won't come to Christ unless the Father draws them in. But how does he draw them? How does, how does the Father draw man to himself, to his Son? By sending the Spirit, because it's the Spirit who will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. John chapter 16. How do, one of the first steps in coming to faith is coming to, to, coming to, to, to grip with your own sin and then repenting of it. How can you repent if you're not even aware of your sin? The Spirit, sent by the Father, convicts of sin and draws man to himself. And so sinners convicted of sin by the Spirit are made aware of their lack of righteousness and that is then how they run to the Son, to Jesus Christ for salvation. It's beautiful. This is, this is the work of the Trinity in salvation. So what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Why is it unforgivable? Unforgivable. I hope that's helpful for you this morning. I don't want us to be a church that just knows interesting facts about gospel, or about the gospel, or about Christianity. They're truth, facts, they oftentimes can just serve to feed our own pride as we store them up and hope to slam them down as a trump card and, and some type of an argument in the future. There's something for us to do today, no matter who you are, there is something for you to do today in response to the text that we've just looked at. There's something that you need to do, and maybe more than one, and I want to walk through a few of the ways that you should respond. And so what should your response include? It's the first thing I want you to, to include, or I would hope that you would include in your response to this text this morning, number one, is fear. I honestly hope that you would respond to this text in fear. That you would see that God is not a safe God. We want to think that he's safe. We want to think that he doesn't have any teeth, so to speak. And that we can't be harmed by him because he's just a loving God. While he is a loving God, he is also a holy and just God. And he will judge sin. And so listen to me. It doesn't matter what age you are. It doesn't matter where you are in your walk. Sin will be judged. God is just and he is the justifier. But he is just. And if you stand before God, unforgiven, in your sin, you face eternal judgment in a place called hell. And that's not popular, and yet it's true. So there is a real sense of fear. I've heard it said before, well, when, we, when the Bible talks about fearing God, it doesn't really mean that we should fear God. It just means that we should really be like, oh, that's true, to some degree. But God is a God of justice. And there are those that will spend eternity in a place called hell as a punishment separated from God. So there is a sense, a real sense, in that we should not take fatigue out of God and out of justice. And that we should, yes, we should awe. Yes, we should be in awe. And yes, we should fear Him. There's a sense of urgency in this life. I love how one pastor, he used this illustration. I want to give it, I'm going to steal it and give it to you this morning. He used the illustration of a buzzard who spots a carcass on a piece of ice floating in the river. And that 
buzzard sees the, the piece of ice and the carcass on it, and he thinks, I'm going to get myself a meal. So he, he swoops down and lands on that piece of ice in that cold river, and that river is heading towards a falls. A falls, if you will. And he says, I can, I can fly in just an instant. I can literally, with one swoop of my wings, I can lift off of this piece of ice and be fine. There's nothing to fear. And so the buzzard swoops down, lands on the block of ice, and begins to enjoy his meal. Before, before long, the ice has come right to the edge, and he, he realizes in that instant it's time for him to spread his wings and to fly. And as he begins to do that, he realizes that something has gone terribly wrong, that his, his, his claws, his feet, are stuck to that ice. And now he goes over the edge. He had nothing to fear, and yet he did. He thought there was no urgency. He thought there was safety, and yet there was no safety. And it's true for us as well. We look at sin, and we say, it's not that, it's not that terrible. It's not that unsafe. It's not that dangerous. I've got time besides all of that. We have no idea when our time is up. We have no idea when that last time that we have resisted the Holy Spirit and rejected his testimony and in, and in our lives, when it will be too late. So church, my encouragement for you, my call for you this morning is to fear sin. Flee judgment and respond in fear. Respond with fear. Not without hope, but with fear. And so also, not in addition, in addition to responding with fear, I hope that we will respond with repentance that we will be responding with repentance. Have you ever been stumped by one of those games that said, uh, shows you two pictures and they look identical, but it's like, hey, there's some differences here. Uh, and see if you can spot them. Some of you have been, uh, you've been held, your attention's been held for hours because they gave you two pictures of the exact same thing and there were no differences, but you knew you were going to find them. If we were to compare the life of someone who blasphemed, committed a sin, and was forgiven, with the life of somebody who blasphemed and was not forgiven, what would the one difference be? What would the one difference be? If I were to show you, we could not, not I'm not talking about their judgments, because forgiveness, those who are forgiven would spend eternity in a place called heaven, worshiping the Lord for eternity. And the other would spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. But if we were to look at this life, what would the difference be? Somebody who has committed a sin and been forgiven, and somebody who has forgiven a sin and not been forgiven, the difference would be repentance. That would be the visible difference between these two. So my call for you this morning, as we consider this unpardonable sin, this unforgivable sin, is to remember that the difference between the two is that one has repented. One has re repented and turned from their sin, trusted the testimony of the Holy Spirit in their life, and received grace. So I urge you, in the name of Jesus, to trust the testimony of the Holy Spirit and to repent. This is one of the, again, one of the most concerning passages in the Bible. And if your worries about the unforgivable sin, if they're related to a pattern of sin or unrepentance in your life, your very concerns may be that God's Spirit is actually working in you and drawing you to repentance. So if there's a sin... In your life, a besetting sin, and you don't you, you don't seem to be able to get victory over. You continually fall back into it again and again. 
you're concerned about that this morning, perhaps it's because the Spirit of God is drawing you, and you are hardening your heart. The warning is that if you do not repent, if you do not truly turn from that, there is coming a time where it may be too late. So fear. Respond in fear. Run. We run from the things that we're afraid of. Run from sin. Run to faith. And run to repentance. Think of Acts chapter 7, verse 51. It says this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. So stop resisting. Stop being like the Israelites here. Mark makes it plain that sins are only forgiven if a person repents. He says that in chapter 1, verse 4, and verses 14 and 15 of the same chapter, in chapter 4, verses 12, chapter 6, verse 12, it's stated clearly throughout Acts, if we're going to receive forgiveness of sin, we have to repent. We must turn from our sin and cast ourselves on the grace of God to follow Him. So we respond with fear, we respond with repentance, but I also hope that we respond with faith. The promise that we heard from Scripture is that if we repent, He forgives. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You say, well, it's hard to believe it. Do you believe it? Trust it. Lean into that. It's a real struggle, this passage is, because we think, well, maybe I've committed that mysterious and, and hidden sin. Maybe it's in my life. Remember, what's the difference between those who have received forgiveness and those who haven't? Repentance. And so what do we do? In faith, we repent. I want to give you a verse here. Write this down. 1 John 1 9. 1 John 1 9 is a promise. It says, if we confess our sins, repentance is involved. If we, re we confess our sins, He, speaking of the Father, is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins. And, furthermore, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a fact. I want to give you a word of comfort here quickly, too, in addition to that, that verse. There is no record in Scripture of anybody ever asking for forgiveness of God and being denied. No record. Lots of records of people asking forgiveness and it being granted, but no record of anybody asking for forgiveness and it being denied. And so if you ask yourself this morning, you say, Pastor Josh, I'm concerned. Is it possible that I have committed this unpardonable sin? Is it possible? How do you know? The forgiveness, the, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a willful, unrelenting rejection. Where God responds by withdrawing the Spirit, and there's no conviction of sin. And so how do you know, how do you know if you've not committed that sin? Have you repented of your sin? Have you turned from your sin? Have you asked for forgiveness and trusted the work of Jesus Christ? If you have, then you've been forgiven. Again, the only thing that matters in this scenario, questioning whether God has forgiven you or not, is whether you've repented. If you've turned from it. So, with regard to ourselves, what are we to do? Well, we're to respond in fear. We're to respond in faith. We're to respond in repentance. That's what we're to do. We're to run to God. But what are we to do in response to those who are around us? 
How do we how do we care for those who are around us? Well, we we respond with care. In light of this text this morning, we respond with care. Those who are outside of the faith, what do we do? We recognize that there is a sin that is unforgivable. And what is that sin? It's the rejection of the Holy Spirit as he woos you and draws you to himself. And so what do we do? If there is a danger for our neighbors, we warn them. Do we not? Any good person, relatively speaking, what would they say? If they saw that their neighbor was in danger, they would go and they would tell them. And so with care, we respond to this text, recognizing that not, there are many who do not know this truth. That the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin, is if they reject the work of the Holy Spirit. If they attribute what is true about God to Satan, or what is God true about God to Satan. And so with care we go. We say it every week. You're sent. Are you really sent? Do you live a life sent? Do you live a life on mission? What's more, we respond with care within the context of the local church. This is, this is so important. What is the church? The church is a group of people who have been drawn out to repentance by the Holy Spirit. They're called out from the, from the world. And together, among many things, we, uh, one thing that we do is we await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we do? We hope to see fear of sin, repentance of sin, along with faith in Jesus, not only in our lives individually, but in those who are in the church as well. So as I look around this room, this is what I hope for as a pastor, as a member of this church. I hope to see fear of sin. I hope to see brothers and sisters running from sin, killing sin, fighting sin. I hope to see repentance on the faces and hearts of every single one of you. And I long to see faith. And here's what I need to do when I don't see that. I need to come alongside you and call you and encourage you to those things. And you need to do that for me. That's the context of the local church. And so as a result of this passage, when we begin to see in the life of a believer, so-called in the church, we see this is evidence that they are rejecting willfully the attestation and testimony of the Holy Spirit concerning the life of Jesus, the person of Jesus. We, with love and care and urgency, we go to them. We call them to repentance, and we hope that they'll be restored that we, again, can have our faith in their salvation restored, that they truly are in Christ. Because the Lord gives us a testimony. One testimony says this. One testimony says this. These things over here, Christians do. These things over here, unbelievers do. Believers, they don't curse God. They praise Him. Unbelievers, they curse Him. Believers, what do they do? They don't murder. They're faithful to their spouses. What do these guys do over here? They don't. So when we see somebody lying about the person of Jesus Christ, what do we do? We call them to repent. If they're in the church especially, this is, this is the essence of church discipline. The church discipline isn't, isn't something that elders do in the church. It's something the church does for itself with the hope of restoration, with the goal that whoever is under church discipline, that they'll turn, they'll return in repentance and full confidence that then we can say they we really believe that this person is a believer and a Christian, and they've not committed some blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They've not rejected the testimony of God. And they really, truly are a Christian and not an apostate. So what's the motivation for church discipline? It's care. It's love. So church, we're called to do this work. And I recognize it is difficult at times to say, what if I misunderstood? Stay with me. What if I misunderstood? 
I, I care too much about my friendship to really go to that brother and sister in Christ and offer them some correction. I don't know if my relationship with can withstand it. I care too much about them. That's a lot. That's a lot. If you really believe that, you don't know your own heart. If we really love those around us, if we really love the brothers and sisters of the church, regardless of what they think of us and how that we are received, we'll go to them call them to repentance and call them to faith. Call them to restoration. You care more about some, your own reputation, your, your, your own comfy relationship than, than their salvation, their growth. Church, those who continue on sinning, the Bible says, are not true Christians. Those who truly do not repent have some form of godliness. They look like they're Christians. Those people exist. People who are even sorrowful for their sin, but it's a worldly sorrow, they return back to it. The Bible says of them that they're likely not Christian at all. So as brothers and sisters, what do we do? We, as Jude says, we, we, we snatch brothers and sisters out of the fire. We hate the garment that's even spotted with the flesh. We hate sin. We're afraid of it. We run from it. In faith and repentance, we trust the Lord. This is what we're to do. There's action to be taken as a result of this text. And where, where we began, ultimately, this morning will end. With praise. This is the final response that I hope that you'll have as a result of this text. This is where we're going to end. We should praise God because he's just. We'll praise God because he judges sin rightly. In this life, unmeasured justice is one of the most sickening situations that we can find. That somebody would somehow avoid justice. They wouldn't pay for their crimes in this life. and Maybe they die in prison some, some random, mysterious way. We hate that because they, would, they somehow skirted justice and got away. Maybe they, maybe they started a, a world war, killed millions of people, and then they didn't face their crimes. They didn't face their victims. We hate that. It's heinous. They took the cowardly way out. And we say in our heart that this is not right. And we fear that maybe justice won't be served. Rest assured. The desire that we have that justice be served and those that we see around us in the heinous acts will be served. God will just, or just be just and he will judge. All sin. Incidentally, he'll even judge our own sin. And deep down, we know that this is right and we should praise God for it because he's not a God that doesn't judge. He's not a God that just loves. We have no respect for that. He's not created us to respect that. We respect righteousness. We respect justice. But we also praise him because he forgives them. Because both God can be both just and the justifier. That brings us to the place of repentance. That he would offer forgiveness to us. That his spirit would come to us and call us to himself. Let's praise him for that. That we can have our own sin revealed in our lives. Church, I said this a moment ago. The opposite of blasphemy is praise. Think about that. The opposite of lying about God in an attempt to slander him is to speak a truth about him in an attempt to glorify him. And ultimately, this is where we have to land as a church. And this is where we stay. This is where we rest. This is why we sing. This is why we go. Why? Because God is a God worthy to be praised. I want to end my time with you this morning by reminding you 
something so special. Skip ahead just for a moment and, and show you something in Mark chapter 15. I want to just pick out a few verses, a few phrases from chapter uh, 15, verses 27 down to 32. In verse 29, it says that those who passed by derided him, Jesus, on the cross. This is Jesus on the cross. They derided him. They mocked him. Skipping on down in verse 31, it also says that the chief priests and scribes, they mocked Jesus along with one another, saying, he saved others. He can't even save himself. They mocked him. This is blasphemy. Verse 32, what, is it, uh, what does it say? Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So everybody, it seems, a large crowd of people, from those in power to those who are literally having their lives stuffed out next to Jesus, receiving justice, they're all doing what? They're blaspheming Jesus. They're blaspheming. They're, they're saying things about him that aren't true. They're slandering him. Ironically, what was Jesus being crucified for? Blasphemy. And here, the, the, the one against whom bla all blasphemy is committed is being accused and crucified for an alleged blasphemy. Why do I bring that up? We'll, we'll save chapter 15 for a couple months out, but I bring it up for this reason. But the Gospels go on to tell us that one of these in that party, those who were crucified with him, who also reviled Jesus, they rejected the testimony of the Holy Spirit and, and mocked him. What, what does it say about one of them? It says that he repented of his sin, received the drawing of the Holy Spirit, and it wasn't too late. And yet it was so close. It was so terribly close. So I offer that to you this morning. There, if you're breathing this morning, it's not too late. It's not too late to repent. If you hear the testimony of the Word of God, of the Holy Spirit, concerning the life of Christ this morning, if your sin is made evident to you, then what are you to do? Hate sin. Be afraid of it. Run in faith toward repentance from the cross. Father, we appreciate it so greatly. To say that we appreciate it really, I hope, is an understatement. That you would reveal our sin to us. That you would draw us to yourself through your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that if there is a one here this morning that's operating this willful rejection of your Spirit's testimony concerning the life of Jesus, that we would repent of it. Father, it comes in so many forms and fashions. We pray through your spirit that you would reveal these things to us, that you would draw us to yourself, to the Father. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his